kids singing songs. I asked Dimitri if he'd make a lot of mistakes in his scripture reading so that uh, the sermon might be moving upwards. But, uh, but today is our third Sunday of Advent, which means that Christmas is one week closer. But you know, think about this. It also means that the return of our Lord Jesus is one week closer. Think about that. For more than 15 centuries, the church has set apart this season and these four Sundays for soul-searching preparation and for anticipation of Advent. That little word, Advent, simply means arrival. And during this season, we have two arrivals in view. The past arrival of King Jesus, our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, the babe born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem of Judea. That's the first advent. The second advent is the future arrival of King Jesus when he will return to judge the living and the dead. You know, we use those words. He will come to judge the living and the dead. We say it every Sunday as we recite the creed. But you know, that comes directly from the scriptures. We see it in Acts 10, 2 Timothy 4, and 1 Peter 4. It's biblical. The judge will come. So with those two arrivals in view, all Christians this season, men, women, and children, should prepare themselves for what is to come by meditating on what are called the last four things or the four last things. They are the certainty of death, the day of judgment, the joys of heaven, and the pains of hell. And this morning we will touch on the third of the four last things, heaven. Two things come to my mind when I think of heaven. The first is a verse, 1 John 3, 2. It's in the text that we'll talk about this morning. The second is an, is an old book that I read years ago that had a huge impact on me as a new believer. It was written during the English Civil War, the year was 1647. A Puritan pastor by the name of Richard Baxter took ill, and he resigned his post as an army chaplain. And as he lay ill, thinking he might die, he wrote a book about meditating upon heaven. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. The book was born out of Baxter's sufferings during that sickness. In his own words, he wrote it looking death full in the face and yet experiencing the sufficient grace of God. Now, Baxter took one verse, Hebrews 4.9. He meditated on that verse. It's only 12 words long. He meditated on it and he wrote an 850-page book. Baxter didn't die from that illness he recovered and lived for another 44 years, during which he wrote many volumes of helpful books. His word to the reader at the front of the Saints Everlasting Rest is as good an introduction for a sermon on heaven as I could find. So this is Richard Baxter to his readers. Now, reader, whatever you are, young or old, rich or poor, I beg you, 
and charge you in the name of your Lord who will call you shortly to a reckoning and judge you to your everlasting, unchangeable state that you give not these things the reading only. Don't just read these words and so dismiss them with a bare approval, but that you set upon this work and take God in Christ for your only rest and set your heart upon Him above all. Jest not with God. Do not only talk of heaven, but mind it. Seek it with all your might. What greater business have you? Dally no longer when your salvation lies at the stake. So this morning I beg the same of you as we prepare together for Advent. Let's not, let's not just talk about heaven. Let's mind it and let's seek it with all our might. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And we will be at the end of chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. We're only going to project a few key verses on the screen. So you'll want to have an open Bible and a pen with you. If you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to grab one off the cart at the back of the room. And if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those as your own. You know, we love the Word of God, and we know that when we approach the Word, that context is critical. And so before we jump in, let's get the bird's eye view of this morning's text. The Apostle John, who is known as the beloved disciple, wrote this little five-chapter letter to the churches in Asia Minor. That's in modern-day Turkey. The churches there faced a form of false teaching that denied that Jesus was the Son of God and denied that He had come in the flesh. Think about that. The false teaching that hit this church or these group of churches denied the very things that we celebrate at the first advent, at Christmas. That's what these false teachers denied. And some of the church members fell for it, and they separated themselves from the church. And this caused the believers who stayed to question whether they really knew God and whether they had eternal life as was promised in Christ. And so John writes this letter to strengthen their confidence. He gave them at least a dozen evidences throughout this letter for them to use to evaluate themselves and those who had left the church. Well, that's the situation that John is addressing. Let's listen to now, now to what he tells them. Chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in Christ. This is the first of two commands in this text. And given all the false teaching that was going around about the true nature of Christ, John wants to strengthen the confidence of these believers, and he does that by urging them to abide or to remain in Christ. Use the words of Jesus in John 15. Believers are like branches that must abide in the true vine. 
That is, they must continue to cling to the life-giving truths of the gospel, of the glory of Christ. Otherwise, they are but dead sticks. The truths to which these believers must cling for life are the truths that they received from eyewitnesses like the Apostle John. They're also the truths that are preserved for us today in the Word of God. Listen to John explain this a few verses earlier. Verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning, that is, what you heard from me and the other eyewitnesses to these things, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Let the word of Christ, let the truth of Christ abide within you. Not this new teaching that denies Christ. And if that truth abides in you, you will abide in him. And then you can be confident of what he promised, eternal life. This abiding is the believer persevering in the truth of Christ and in the faith. It is an evidence of being a true believer in contrast to those who had left the church. So why does John tell them then to abide in this life-giving truth of the gospel? Verse 28, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This is all about strengthening the confidence of believers as they look forward to the second advent. If we abide, if we continue to cling to these life-giving truths, we can have confidence that the return of Christ will be no cause for shame. Instead, we will look forward to it in eager anticipation. That's what the Advent season is all about. So prepare for it, brothers and sisters, by abiding in Christ. One more thing, though, about abiding. And this is important for understanding John's argument here. The inevitable result of abiding in Christ is the bearing of the fruit of righteousness. The branch that abides bears fruit. And here's why I say that, verse 29. This is closely related to what Josh preached last week about the sheep and the goats. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, that is, if you know that Christ is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's John's logic. If Christ is righteous, and we know that he is, then we can be certain that those who practice righteousness, true righteousness, have righteous DNA. They have been born of Christ. They are a good tree, therefore they bear good fruit. They are sheep, therefore they behave like sheep and not like goats. Those who abide in Christ bear the fruit of righteousness. It is the inevitable result of abiding in the true vine. And those who thus abide have confidence and can eagerly await the return of Christ. And those who don't flee at the very thought of the arrival of their judge. That's point one. Prepare 
for Advent by abiding in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 3. See, mark that word. In fact, mark two words. Mark the word see and mark the word kind. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. The word see is our second command in this text. And if I may, I think that the word see is a bit weak. Those of you who are using the King James Version know exactly what I just said. King James Version and other English versions, um, instead of the word see, use the, a word we never use these days, except for maybe in Christmas carols, behold. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed. It means the same thing, but there's a force in behold that explains something of the explanation, exclamation that John is trying to get across. Behold what kind of love. Pay attention to that little word kind. It is so interesting. It's the same word that the disciples used when they saw Jesus rebuke the sea and calm the storm. They said, what sort or what kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The word originally meant, of what country is this? We've never seen anything like this. It is utterly foreign to us. Of what country is a man who can calm the sea with his words? Of what country is this love that has been lavished upon us? One commentator said, we need to behold. We need to contemplate this love and allow its reality to sink deep into our being. It is meant to take our breath away, to startle and amaze us so that we are left gasping, what sort of love is this? That fully deserving sinners... Wrath-deserving sinners should be instead lavished by the love of God. Prepare for Advent, brothers and sisters, by beholding the love of God. And to do that, let's consider three things. Let's consider what we are, what we will be, and what we will see. First, what we are. It should be clear from our condition as sinners, that God is the one who takes the initiative when it comes to this love. We were dead in our sins, incapable of loving Him if He did not first love us. In this is love. This is John just chapter or so later. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I think I've used the word propitiation now for three sermons. So I think we should be getting used to that big word. And what is this love? We're still in verse one. This love is that we should be called children of God. That's God's love. He calls us his children. This is pure grace. 
He not only loved undeserving sinners, but he even calls them his children. But it gets even better than that. Look at the next phrase. Believers are not merely called God's children. They're not just children in name. They are really God's children. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And now mark these four words, and so we are. This child-father relationship is not wishful thinking on our part. It's not just a name. It is real. We are called His children, and so we are. The Father, in the overflow of gracious, unfathomable love, adopted us and made us His children. Let that soak into your minds and sink into your hearts. How did this kind of love, how was it made known? Well, John tells them later in the letter, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world. That's the first advent, that God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Again, eternal life, or we could say the saints' everlasting rest, is at stake. And if meditating on the truth of the love of the Father that adopts undeserving hell-bound sinners If that doesn't kindle a fire within you to worship Him in celebration of the first advent or to earnestly desire His Son's return at the second advent, I don't know what will. But it's even more glorious than that. Not only are we called God's children and actually are God's children by adoption, but skip over to verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. Mark that beautiful little three-letter word, now. This reality isn't something that we have to wait for. It's not that it'll be true of us someday in the future after we die or after the Christ returns. We are God's children now. Of course, there's a sense in which we await the full benefits and the inheritance of this adoption but we can approach him as our father now. Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let that kind of love sink into your minds and soak deep into your hearts as we finish verse 1. The reason why the world does not know us, John says, is that it did not know him. You see, because of this transforming love of God, the children of God are of an altogether different breed. We are as different as sheep are from goats. 
What we believe and how we live is utterly foreign to the world around us. That's why we're called pilgrims and strangers on this earth. If the world knew our Father, they would understand us. They would know us, but they don't know our Father, and so they cannot make heads or tails of us as children. Verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. That's what we are. Now, because of the love of our Father, consider our next question. When Christ returns, what will we be? If We are the children of God now. What will we be when he returns? Well, before John answers the question, he tells us that we don't know exactly what we're going to be. Verse 2, what we will be, he says, has not yet appeared. It's hidden. It's true. We are children of God now, but what the full blessedness of that will look like in glory, we just don't know. We saw this in Paul's letter to the Colossians about a month ago when he told them that their life is hidden with Christ in God. So We don't know exactly what a child of God, a fully purified mind and a glorified body will be like, but here's what we do know. At the second advent, we know that it will be glorious and that we will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3. We know that we will see the glory of Christ, John 17. And because we will see the glory of Christ, we know that we will finally be conformed to his image. That's Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 15. That conforming and transforming is happening to us right now as the children of God. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. But verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Our present transformation by grace into the image of Christ from this one degree of glory to another will come to full consummation when we step into his presence and behold his glory. Francis Turretin, the 17th century theologian from Geneva, he had a famous way of saying this. He said, grace is glory begun. As glory is grace consummated. Grace is glory begun as glory is grace consummated. The gracious love of our Father transforms us. We're no longer goats or bad trees. We are new creations in Christ. And yet he isn't finished. His grace is only glory begun. At the second advent, when we step into glory... His transforming grace will be consummated. We shall be like him. So because of the love of our Father, what will we be? We will be glorious like Christ. But lest we take that too far, Luther makes an important qualification. We shall be like him, but not identical with him. For God is infinite, and we are finite creatures. Moreover, the creature will never be the creator. 
yet we shall be like him. God is life, therefore we too shall live. God is righteous, therefore we too will be filled with righteousness. God is immortal and blessed, therefore we too shall enjoy everlasting bliss. Not as it is in God, but the bliss that is suitable for us. Now, if that's what we will be, then what exactly will we see? And I admit, there is a lot of overlap with the last point in this one. What we will be is precisely because of what we will see. Beholding the glory of the Lord is what is transforming us now. And when we see him face to face, we will be glorified. And what that fully means, I have no real idea. Back to verse 2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Up to this point, um, some of you are probably wondering, what does all of this have to do with heaven? Well, here it is. That little phrase, we shall see him, is the very essence of the believer's experience in heaven. I hate to break it to you, but his, the sight of our Lord is going to be so glorious, you're probably not going to notice the streets of gold. R.C. Sproul said that this text is one of the most important, if not the most important text in the New Testament about end times because it promises the believers that we will enjoy the zenith of felicity. That is the height of happiness in heaven. And then R.C. names it the beatific vision. What is that? The beatific vision is the pleasure of seeing God face to face, so to speak. Jonathan Edwards puts it so beautifully. The pleasure of seeing God is so great and strong that it takes full possession of the heart. It fills it so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature to joy. No darkness can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see God face to face, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. When once the saints are thus come into the God's presence, tears shall be wiped away from their eyes, and sorrow and seeing sign shall flee away pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty that is every ounce of your glorified being will experience the pleasure of being in the presence of God. The sight of God's glory and love will be so wonderful, so engaging to the mind and shall keep all the powers of it in such strong attention that the soul will be wholly possessed and taken up. That is something of what it's going to be like when we see 
God. That is the saint's everlasting rest. It is the greatest blessing of God's grace that he could ever bestow upon lowly creatures like you and I. It is the love of God beyond our wildest imagination. But, as Calvin tells us, this unmediated sight of God can only happen when the veil of this mortal and corruptible nature is removed. And that's why we so eagerly await the second advent. For now we see, as it were, the backside of God's glory. We see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. It's also why verse 2 doesn't just say, we shall see him. It says, we shall see him as he is. And we can't handle that in our current state. So we look forward to the day that we will be in his presence in glorified bodies. So what will we see? We will see God face to face as it were. And the sight of him will be the epicenter of our experience in heaven. He is the source of all beauty, all joy, all delight, and it will enthrall us for all of eternity. That said, let me, let me say two more things about what we will see in heaven and what we won't see in heaven. We're going to have a lot to meditate upon this week as we prepare for Advent. In 2003, I went to a conference in Minneapolis to celebrate the 300th birthday of Jonathan Edwards. I know that you, most of you find that weird. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms was there, and he gave a lecture on joy's eternal increase. I've never forgotten this, and I, I was able to find it online and um, pull part of it here. Part of this lecture was his meditation on the description of heaven or the new heaven and the new earth from Revelation 21.4, Revelation 21.8, and Revelation 21.27. Listen to Dr. Storms describe from these three texts what we won't see in heaven and what we will see in heaven. First, he quotes Edwards. When we get to heaven, there will be, Edwards said, Nothing which shall offend the most delicate eye. In other words, nothing that is abrasive, irritating, agitating, or hurtful. Nothing harmful, hateful, upsetting, or unkind. Nothing sad, bad, or mad. Nothing harsh, impatient, ungrateful, or unworthy. Nothing weak or sick or broken or foolish. Nothing deformed, degenerate, depraved, or disgusting. Nothing polluted, pathetic, poor, or putrid. Nothing dark, dismal, dismaying, or degrading. Nothing blameworthy, blemished, blasphemous, or blighted. Nothing faulty, faithless, frail, or fading. 
Nothing grotesque or grievous, hideous or, inf- or insidious, nothing illicit or illegal, lascivious or lustful, nothing marred or mutilated, misaligned or misinformed, nothing nasty or naughty, offensive or odious, nothing rancid or rude, spoiled or soiled, nothing tawdry or tainted, tasteless or tempting. Nothing vile or vicious, wasteful or wanton. None of that will be in heaven. We will see none of that. Here's what we will see. Wherever you turn your eyes, you will see nothing but glory and grandeur and beauty and brightness and purity and perfection and splendor and satisfaction and sweetness and salvation and majesty and marvel and holiness and happiness. We will see only all that is adorable and affectionate, beautiful and bright, brilliant and bountiful, delightful and delicious and delectable and dazzling and elegant and exciting, fascinating and fruitful, glorious and grand, gracious and good, happy and holy, healthy and whole, joyful and jubilant, lovely, luscious, majestic and marvelous. Opulent and overwhelming, radiant and resplendent, splendid and sublime, sweet and savoring, tender and tasteful, euphoric and unified. We simply can't imagine what it's going to be like, brothers and sisters. And for all of those delightful things, keep this in mind, the presence of our God is even bigger and more glorious than that. Heaven itself cannot contain him. King King David proclaimed, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain contain you. So let me close by addressing two groups of people in this room. Believers and those who might not believe Believers, I encourage you to prepare your hearts for Advent. The time is drawing near. Prepare yourself by abiding in the sun and by meditating on the love of your Father. Meditate on what you are, on what you will be, and the unimaginable delight of what you will see. Meditate upon your Everlasting rest. God's grace in you is glory begun. And glory will be God's grace consummated. For the unbelievers in the room, I cannot imagine how you could reject the adopting love of my father You're just blind. I hope, though, that his spirit is working upon your heart. Let me encourage you this this Advent season to meditate on the four last things. Think seriously about death and judgment and heaven. 
and hell. You know that death is inevitable, and the judgment that follows death is just as inevitable, and heaven and hell hang in the balance. Prepare for the arrival of King Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. To those who are not his children, who do not believe, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But to his children, he will welcome them into his glorious presence. He will welcome them into their everlasting rest. To become a child of God, you must be born of God. That's how you become one's child, right? You must be born of the Spirit. How does that happen? Well, first, you need to recognize your hopeless standing before the Almighty. You are fully deserving of His wrath because you have sinned against Him. Every one of us has We are sinners by birth, and we are sinners by choice. And each one of us have broken countless times every one of God's commandments, either the letter or the Spirit. And even our littlest of sins amount to acts of treason against our Creator. And our Creator is a good and just God, which means that He cannot allow sin to go unpunished. The wages of our sin is death and hell. There are glorious words to be had, but the grace of God has appeared. Like we saw earlier, the love of our Father was put on display in the first advent. He sent His Son Jesus to take on human flesh, to live the perfect life that you could not live to suffer and to die a humiliating death on a Roman cross for the sake of his children. It was there that he paid the penalty for their sins. He died, was buried, and on the third day he rose again. He sits now at the right hand of the Father in heaven and he offers forgiveness and everlasting rest to those who call upon him. You cannot save yourself, but you can trust him who has the power over sin and death to do so. Put your trust in him. We use all different words to try to get that across. Trust him. Believe in him. Receive him. Embrace him. Put your faith in him and in him alone to rescue you from your sin and to unite you with him. A great exchange will take place. Your sin will be credited to his account. The penalty that you owed will have been paid by him as your substitute. And not only will you be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future, but the righteousness of Christ will be credited to your account. And that is the only way that you will be able to stand in the presence of the Almighty and delight in his glory. A great and glorious exchange is being offered to you. Call upon him for mercy, and you can bank on this. 
that all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If I can borrow from Richard Baxter again, dally no longer. Dally no longer when your salvation lies at the stake. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, heaven is such a serious thing. We delight to think upon it. Father, I pray that as we meditate upon it in these coming days, what we will be and what we will see, what it might be like to be in glorified bodies worshiping around your throne. Father, I pray that you would use that sight to transform the way that we think now while we are still here on earth. Father, may we serve you in a manner that shows that we are seeking our reward elsewhere and not here. Father, I pray for those in this room who do not know you. I pray for those in this room that have not gotten a glimpse of your glory and have no delight in these things. Oh, Father, I pray that you would work a miracle in their heart. I pray that your grace would begin to transform their hearts even now. Father, I pray that you would give them the grace to call out to you for mercy this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.